Bible stories. This morning, we're going to be looking in the book of 2 Kings, chapter number 11. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. We're going to get there in a few minutes' time. What I'm going to do is I'm going to tell a Bible story, and then we're going to read it, and then we're going to seek to make application for our daily lives. Because this story we're going to read from 2 Kings, chapter 11, was one that I had to read several times to get the names right and to get everything in order and work out what was happening here. So I'm going to use some visual aids today in a few minutes. But every single day... You and I have opportunity to make choices. The choices that you make do not necessarily define your character and the God's love for you, but they certainly define what's going to happen next in your life. Big things and also sometimes some really small things. You arriving here today, you made a whole lot of choices. You chose to get out of bed. Well done. You chose to put clothes on. Thank you very much. You, know, you chose various things. You, you know, before coffee, you chose to talk kindly to someone, I hope. And after coffee, you have no excuse. You must talk kindly to people. There's lots of different choices. My challenge for all of us in the first service as well as the second service is that we're united as a, as a one church We're united around one thing. We want to do what is right before God. God gives you and I opportunities to be obedient or to be disobedient, to choose to do what is right or to choose to ignore to do what is right. And sometimes we do what is wrong. We do quite the opposite. My challenge for all of us as a church is to choose in the small and the seemingly mundane things that we will choose to do what is right. And then from that, we'll allow God to work in us and through us, developing and growing those opportunities to be what it is that he wants them to be. We're going to look at a character this morning who you've never heard of before named Jehoshiba. And she made a choice. She made an incredible choice that ultimately impacted not just her generation, it impacted the next generation to come, and ultimately even the very lineage of Jesus Christ himself. So really, she made an impact that has impacted all of eternity. Our principle for today is this. It's a very simple principle. It took actually, it took me quite a while to sit at my desk and work out, how can I say what I want to say in a simple way? So I think as simple as possible. Our principle for today is this. And every single Sunday at church, we have a principle that we can seek to apply to our life. Doing the right thing for God is always the right thing to do. Pretty simplistic. I don't think anyone would argue with that because we're in church and it's the right thing to say. That we're always going to do the right thing for God. And I started thinking through this week, when is this not the case? Every single time when God has called me and used well to do something, we return and we do the thing that is right. God blesses in his timing and in his way. Every single time that I've chosen to ignore the things of God, I know for a fact that I missed out on opportunities of God's blessing in my life. I've missed out opportunities to impact my generation, my children, my sphere of influence around me, my community, and ultimately eternity by simply making a small choice to do what is right or to ignore to do what is right. Our principle again, doing the right thing for God is always the right thing to do. This morning, I'm going to tell a story from 2 Kings chapter number 11. And the reason why I'm going to tell it is because I want to use visual aids, and then we'll go back and read it. There's a bunch of interesting things, and quite honestly, this could be a Disney movie plot. You know, because we have a king, we have death, 
we have a prince. If it was a princess, then it definitely would be. It's underlined romance. It's a, a whole bunch of things. That, this could be a Disney plot. So as we go through this, I'm going to put you in the perspective on where the time frame is. This particular time frame is about 830 B.C. It's during the times of the, the nation of Israel has split into two nations or two kingdoms. You have the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. During this time, the king and the queen of Israel was Ahab and Jezebel. If you know anything about the history of Israel, they were the most evil of all the evil kings and queens. They brought in and made Baal worship, the evil Baal false god worship, the norm within the nation. And last Sunday, we talked about uh, Elisha in, in chapter number five. And I continue reading a few weeks ago, and I came across this, and this just jumped out at me. I thought it was doing what is right and the impact that it makes. Now we have a kingdom that is divided, but because of marriage and other things, we have the kingdom of Judah that is not following after the things of God. Now, I have some visual aids for you today. I'm not doing this to be silly. I'm doing it so you remember it. We have King Isaiah. Now, King Isaiah is a man who did not follow after the things of God at all. I told you it was a Disney movie. This This could be a Disney plot. He's a bad king. He does not fall after the things of God. His mother is a lady named Queen Athaliah. Now, Queen Athaliah is a lady who does not fall. In fact, she is the, the daughter of King Ahab and Jezebel. And then she married into the kingdom of Judah and, of course, brought along all her evil with her. And her husband had, had died. Her son had become the king. And she's not really a good queen at all. She's more like this sort of queen. And he is killed. He dies. And Queen Athaliah has an opportunity, and she takes the opportunity and puts herself up as queen. So to do that, she starts killing off her grandchildren, her nieces and nephew, everyone that is in the Davidic line, that is the King David and his line, that ultimately leads all the way to Jesus Christ. She began killing off every single person, and there was one last person left. Now, we talked about a few minutes ago about Jehoshaphat. Now, Jehoshaphat, she was a, a young woman who was a princess. She was, in fact, her brother was King Uzziah, but not the same mother. Whole different story. And she was a princess, but she married a priest, and she was following the things of God. Now, think about this just in human terms. Your brother has died. Then the evil queen sets herself up, begins killing off every single heir so that she would be the only one that could rule and should rule. And she set herself up, and it's an incredible time of turmoil. That everything in the w- their world had been turned upside down. And Jehoshaphat had, be, had been given a choice. What am I going to do? There was one young boy who was one year old named Prince Joash. He was one year old at the time, and Jehoshaphat had an opportunity to take this young child and hide him in a bedroom and took his his nanny with him, and then for six years held him and protected him inside of the temple. 
because they knew there's one place the evil queen uh, Athaliah was not going to go. She was not going to go into God's temple. So they hid him there for six years. Now, don't get stuck on this picture of, the pr- of this priest because this is the best priest picture I could find. But he married really, really well. Priest Jehoiada married Princess Jehoshiba and they together hid Prince Joash for six years in the temple. During this time, they raised him. They kept it a secret. No one else knew. And after six years, the now seven-year-old little boy was, was brought out. And they began to tell some people. They told the, the temple guards what was, who this boy was. The fact that there was hope. There was a prospect for a good and a godly king in their nation. There was an opportunity to dispose and get rid of Queen Athaliah and put in a godly king on the throne. So they conspired and they worked it out. And eventually what they did is they took the boy who is now seven years old and they put him in front of the temple and they begin to cry out and say, God save the king! God save the king! And they had made a commitment to follow the things of God and to, to follow the king. And with that priest Jehoiada put the law of God in the hand of King Josiah and said, we're going to follow God now. We're not going to follow these false gods anymore. So this is more than just a physical coup, as it were. This is now a spiritual coup for the the hearts and the minds of the entire nation. Queen Athaliah hears this and comes down to the temple and hears the crying out of God save the king. She hears that and eventually they take her out and then she ends up much like her son. They go through, destroy the temple of the Baal worshippers. They destroy the, the priest and kill the priest. And they begin to clean up and set up the temple worship. And ultimately, King Josiah reigns for 40 years. And if you go into chapter number 12, it says that he followed after the things of God. All of that, that's an incredible story. Tell you what, it'd make a good movie, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be a G-rated movie either. It's pretty, there's a lot of things going on. And you ha- have what you see, what you have here, is simply a woman who made a choice. She took an opportunity and made a choice. And the result of that simple choice, I'm going to save this child, took her six years to see it eventuate and ultimately a lifetime of service. And it impacted not just her generation, not just her family, but ultimately the entire world today by simply making a choice. You and I are given opportunities to make choices and we have no idea the eternal impact that they will make. We're simply called to be obedient when God gives us opportunities. Our principle again is doing the right thing for God is always the right thing to do. 2 Kings chapter number 11. I'm going to read most of the verses of this chapter. And then you'll see why I use visual aids, because a bunch of names are just thrown around really quickly. Let's begin in verse number one. Now, then Athaliah, the mother of Isaiah, saw that her son was dead, and she arose and destroyed all the royal family. But Josheba, the daughter of King Joram, the sister of Isaiah, took Joash, the son of Isaiah, and stole him away. I told you. And stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid him from Athaliah so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years hidden in the house of the Lord while Athaliah reigned over the land. Verse 4. 
But in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the Karites. The Karites are guards who were rulers over 100 other guards of the house of the gods and had them come to him in the house of the Lord and made a covenant with them and put them under an oath in the house of the Lord. And he showed them the king's son. Go down to verse number 12. Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. That is the law of God. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him and clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. Then Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people and went to the house of the Lord to the people. And when she looked, there was a king standing by the pillar according to the custom. And the captains and the trumpeters beside the king and the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets. And Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, Treason! Treason! Verse 16. So they laid hands on her and she went through the horse's entrance to the king's house and there she was put to death. And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people. They all together made a covenant that they should be the Lord's people and also between the king and people. And all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down, his altars, his images, and they broke it in pieces and they killed Matin, the priest of Baal before the altars and the priest posted watchmen over the house of the Lord. And he, he took the captains of the, and the Karites and the guard and all the people of the land and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord, marching through the gate to guard the king's house. And he took his seat on the throne of the kings. So all the people of the land rejoiced in this, and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword in the king's house. Verse 21. And Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. This morning, I have five challenges for you and I. Doing what is right, it will not be the easy option. But we can have challenges in our life to do what is right, even when it is difficult. Five challenges. First of all, doing what is right will be difficult, requires commitment, inspires others, breaks the cultural norm, and impacts the next generation. Let's begin with the first. Doing what is right will be difficult. You think through, just in human terms, in this particular account in Scripture. You've taken a young boy who has a death sentence upon him just because he was born in that particular family. His grandmother wants him dead. I mean, tell you what, tell you, awkward family reunions. You have this young child. He's been hidden, not just for one week, but for six years. And at all this time, the, the end of verse number three says, while Athaliah reigned over the land. This lady was setting up the, the evil Baal worship. Everything that Israel was commanded to do, they were not following. So now Jehoshiba and Jehoiada, her husband, the priest, were there hiding him in the temple when everything around them was being turned upside down. I think in your life, you made a choice to do something that is right. And with that, you feel incredibly isolated. You feel like you are the only one. Yes, this, this incredible good news that you can't share. 
queen, evil queen Athaliah is, is on the throne. The stability of the nation is in turmoil. Everything's upside down. But you have hope because you know the royal lineage has not been broken. There's a child that's been hidden, but you can't share anything. You're, been, you're, you're feeling like you're in isolation. I feel like you're the only one. A number of years ago, I bought a ring that was an engagement ring for a woman that is now my wife. I purchased it while I was in Bible college, and I, I saved up the money. I could finally afford it. I found a guy who sold rings. It wasn't off the back of a truck. It wasn't stolen. But it was. I found a guy, and he got me a good deal. And I bought this ring, and I wanted Tammy to experience and see Australia before I asked her to marry me because I wanted her to, to know what she was getting herself into because I had left Australia to go to the U.S. to go to Bible college with the intention of returning to do exactly what we're doing here. And I didn't want to bring along a lady who I loved incredibly who didn't have that same passion in her heart. And so I had this ring for five months. And you know how hard it is to hold a secret for five months. And it was burning a hole in my pocket. I had this ring and eventually, I mean, she said yes. I had to beg her, but she said yes. But you have this good news and you feel like I'm the only one. I can't share it with anybody. You feel isolated. Doing the right thing is difficult because you feel isolation. But also doing the right thing is difficult because you have a different perspective than everyone else. You have the eternal perspective, when you do what is right for the things of God, you have a perspective beyond just the here and now. You're not just being nice because that's what good people do. You're being kind and loving because you see a, a, a purpose in someone else's life. You're not just being kind to the down and out person because that's just what nice people do. You're doing it because God sees that person and loves them just as much as he loves you. And so therefore, you're showing that love to others. Your perspective totally changes. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul talks about his present condition and the fact that he has a perspective that is an eternal perspective, not just the short term here and now. And it says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Now, I'm not looking at anyone in particular, but can you relate? The outer self is wasting away. Our inner self, this is his change in perspective. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When we do what is right for the things of God, our perspective is very different. You may feel very isolated, but we have a different perspective than the rest of the world. We are called in fact we're challenged to do what is right it will be difficult but doing what is right also requires commitment requires a commitment to do what is right it is a choice that you make you don't accidentally do what is right I mean, there's some things that I've done that ended up being right I go well that was a happy circumstance I didn't mean that to take place but when I have made a conscious effort and you have made a conscious effort to do what is right it requires a commitment from you. It requires a commitment to see it through to completion. Now, as a parent, now maybe your kids are my, like my kids, which are almost perfect, but almost is a long way. You've told them to do something, and whatever it is, and I'll talk really generally because my kids really are good kids, and they're here today. You've told them to do something, and they do it for a particular period of time. Like you say, Will you please all get along? I'm going out for one hour. And they may be good for 45 minutes, 
But the last 15 minutes, and particularly right when you come home, they're being the naughtiest. And you come home and you go, what happened? They had a commitment to be good and to do right, but they didn't see it to completion. So what happens? They get in trouble. I always found this interesting in school. And whenever the teacher would leave the classroom, the teacher would put one particular person in charge. And they say, you know, little Susie, you're in charge. You watch, make sure everyone's good. So little Susie was that particular person that liked putting names on boards. And she would stand there and look at everybody. And if you knew the teacher was going to be away for maybe five minutes, you know, they're going to the office, you know there and back, they're going to be back in five minutes. What always happens to us? The kids are really good the first four and a half minutes. And then we start playing up. I should have been smarter as a young kid, and maybe we all could have been smarter. We should have messed around for the first four and a half minutes and then be good for the last 30 seconds. But instead, we're good for the first four and a half minutes, and then we get in trouble for being bad for 30 seconds. We need to have a commitment to completion when we're called to do things that are right. Warren Wiersbe says this. He's a Bible commentator. He said this, Faith and patience go together. Faith and patience go together. We can have faith, but we have to have faith to see it through to, the, to completion. And that's the patience portion. But also, it requires commitment, not just to completion. It requires commitment to a cause. You and I have a cause. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible says that you are a new creature in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And we've been given a purpose bigger and greater than just ourselves, bigger and greater than just the time we have here on earth. In 2 Kings chapter 11, verses 4, and also in verse 17, it says, And he made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of the Lord. And verse 17 says that they should be the Lord's people. They had a cause that wasn't just, let's get rid of this evil queen because we don't like her. We have a cause that is a spiritual and eternal cause. It's between us and God. And we're going to make a commitment to a cause, not just commitment to an opportunity. Because opportunities come and go. Opportunities are up and down. I have a cause, and you have a cause, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 28, we're called, the Great Commission says, Go, therefore, and preach the gospel in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And he gives a promise at the end, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the world. And some of your Bibles say, Amen at the end, which means, so let it be. We have a commitment to a cause. So doing what is right, it will be difficult. It requires commitment, but also the joy is it inspires others. Doing what is right inspires others. In your home, it only takes one person to do right to inspire others. As parents, we have the calling and the responsibility to do what is right to inspire our children and the generations to come. But it begins with us to inspire others. When we inspire others, we inspire them towards God. Verse 17, the whole verse says, and Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and people that they should be the Lord's people. And also between the king and the people. They made a covenant. They inspired others. That entire nation of Judah was not following after God. They were following after and worshiping the evil Baal. 
But because of one man, Jehoiada, and one woman, Josheba, they stood up and said, we as husband and wife, we are going to do what is right. And therefore, it trickled down and the entire nation turned away from Baal and turned toward God. You think of the impact that you and your family can make by simply doing what is right and inspiring others within just simply your family and just simply our community and simply our neighboring cities around us. The reason why Southwest Baptist Church is called Southwest Baptist Church and not Dale Baptist Church or any other local, local community is because when we started the church, we said we wanted to be the entire region for Jesus Christ. And I guess we should have called it World Baptist Church. Southwest Baptist Church, we want to think of the whole region. But also, we want to inspire others around us. You see, inspiration is a choice that you and I make. We don't accidentally inspire others to do right. We naturally inspire others to do wrong. We don't, without consciously considering it, inspire others to do right. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, it says, Let us consider... Now, it says there's how to stir up. Now, as a brother, I'm a big brother, and some of you big brothers are here. You know how to stir up your little sisters, or sometimes stir up your big sisters. And you know how to stir, and I've been told by my parents, and maybe you have to stop stirring up your sisters. But if you want to take the Bible totally out of context and totally wrong, you can read this verse and say, let us consider how to stir up one another, and just stop there and go, I can consider that. But it continues on, and it says, let's stir up to what? Not to bad things, but to love and good works. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The beginning of that verse 24 says, let us consider. Consider is, let's make a conscious choice to do what is right. You think of how different our world would be. Let's just talk about our local community. How different our local community would be. How different our region would be if the people in Southwest Baptist Church every single day considered how to stir up others to love and good works. If we just started here, I mean within our own sphere, it's easy to read an inscription and go, yes, somebody needs to do something about that. How different would our world be in the next week if we simply stirred up others to love and good works? And that can begin to be inspiring to others to stir up others to love and good works. How different would our world be in one year time, let alone a decade's time, and as it multiplies and multiplies and multiplies? by inspiring others, by simply saying, I'm going to do what is right and what, given the opportunities that God has given to me. Going on from there, it not just inspires others, it breaks the cultural norm. It breaks the cultural norm. Our world today is a backward world. Things that are biblically correct are seen as wrong. Things that are biblically wrong and called sinful they are seen as normal and good. Our world is totally upside down. Within the education system, our children are being told what is right is wrong and wrong is right. And then they watch TV, and I like TV, but it's 
confusing when right is wrong and wrong is right. And then we come to church and we see what the Bible says, but it doesn't line up with what we find in the rest of our culture. We live in a very upside down world where wrong is right and right is wrong. We need to break the cultural norm. When these people, in verse 17, as the nation, they said, we're going to turn away from Baal. We're no longer going to follow him. We're going to make a commitment and a covenant between us and God and us and our king. As our king is following after God, we'll follow after him. And the direct result of that is they went in verse number 18. It says that all the people of the land, this says all the people of the land. It wasn't just a select few. Everyone together. They inspired the entire nation to break the cultural norm. When all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down, his altars and his images, they broke in pieces. For you and I, in order to break the cultural norm, we must first and foremost be Christ-focused. We must have our focus upon the things of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Imagine how different our families would be if that very line was put into practice. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also the interests of others. Those be others focused. Now, how can we be Christ-focused by being others-focused? Verse 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We can be others-focused because we are Christ-focused. In other words, when I'm kind to others, and I hope that we all seek to be kind to others, I hope that we consider others and we build up in humility, but our motivation isn't a means to an end of how I can manipulate you. It's ultimately it's because it is yours in Christ Jesus. I can see you and who you are and love you despite the hurt that you've made to myself, despite the mistakes you've made in your life, despite the, the sins you've committed, because I see you the way that Jesus Christ sees you. A totally different perspective on life. It breaks the cultural norm because we are Christ-focused. But also we are love-focused. We're focused on something more than simply a, hi, how are you? Isn't that a nice conversation? We have lots of hi and goodbye relationships. We want to get beyond that to the true source of our love. First John chapter 3, verse 17, it says this, talking about God's love. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? A pretty simple question. You have the means to be a blessing and a help to somebody else. God has given you an opportunity to do what is right. And you see that person, you know it. God has given you opportunity. God has given you prompting. And you look at it and you go, hmm, somebody needs to do something about that and continue on your way. The rhetorical question is, how does God's love abide in you? When we say we love someone, it naturally responds in an action. Jesus, when he spoke to two particular groups, the book of Matthew, chapter 23, records him speaking woes 
to the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes in, in biblical times were people, their job was to write out in Hebrew. Notice they write backwards. They write right to left, not left to right. They write Hebrew out and they write out the law of God. That was their job. They were the scribes. They would scribe out the scriptures. They knew the scriptures. They had access to the scriptures all of the time. Yet the scriptures didn't get beyond simply the words and didn't go into their heart. They didn't, it didn't change the way that they loved others. In fact, it made it quite conceited and stuck up. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they were the religious leaders that were the lawyers of the day. As the lawyers of the day, they knew the law and they would seek to apply the law. But the way that they would apply the law was they would say, are I not incredibly good? God, you are so lucky to have me on your side. And they walk around looking at others who had made mistakes and failed and look down upon them. They would do things for self-glory. They would do, in a sense, all the right things, but do it with a, the wrong attitude and the wrong heart. And Jesus calls them, and this may not be a big insult to you, but it was to them at the time. He called them hypocrites. And through this passage in Matthew chapter 23, he uses seven different woes to them. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And verse 13 actually says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. In other words, you have the access. You have the word of God. And what do you do with it? You shove it in people's faces to the point where they can't understand it. For you neither enter yourselves or allow those who would enter to go in. In other words, you make God so inaccessible and you have full access to him. And he says, woe to them. Jesus says these things, but his motivation isn't just vindictive and like, I'm going to get you. It ultimately came back in the end of chapter number 23. Jesus is standing before Jerusalem, weeping over, over the city, crying out in his heart, saying, I love you people. I want to see you know God. I want you to have an intimate and personal relationship with me. And it says in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would, have, I would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are, were not willing. They broke the cultural norm by showing love, and ultimately no one showed more love than Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for your sin and for my sins, and ultimately the sins of the entire world. And that impacts the next generation. As our final point is, doing right impacts the next generation. You and I today, I want what I do today to make an impact. I want, you know, I want people to cry at my funeral. You know, I don't want people to be happy at my funeral one day. But on the other side is, I am not living for a big monument, you know, a, a Michael statue. If it is, I want them to get my good side. But I don't want that at all, okay? I've publicly said I don't want a statue. Because that's not the goal. The goal isn't for people to go, wow, wasn't he good? Or, oh, we'll really miss him. I want to impact the next generation. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. It's a well-known passage, well recited by parents. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. If you go into 2 Kings chapter number 12, the first couple of verses talks about the king Joash at the end of his days. And it gives a summary of his life. And it says, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. And Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days. What an incredible impact they made. Why? 
What's that last line? Because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. This entire generation was impacted. And future generations were impacted afterward. And ultimately the very line of Jesus Christ was preserved. Because one lady, Jehoshiba, and one man, Jehoiada, said we are going to do what is right. Even though it's going to be difficult, even though it's going to require commitment, we're going to seek to inspire others, we're going to break the cultural norm because we want to impact the next generation. Forty-six years later, after they made a simple choice to hide a baby from ultimate death, we have the account of a king saying he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days. As you go out this week, you are going to have opportunities to do right. My prayer for you and my prayer for myself is that I will be switched on. I'll be looking. I'll be ready to respond correctly when God, not if God, but when God gives me opportunity to do what is right. In the big things and also the small things. Maybe tomorrow you need to bring back that stapler that you took from work. Start to do what is right today so that you can impact the next generation to come.